Good morning. This summer, uh, this past summer on Wednesday night, we, I taught a shorter series and then we had a couple guest teachers speak and they taught some lessons. And uh, on one week, Dave Justensky taught a class and he was talking about deconstruction that day, deconstruction. And if that's a, a term or idea you're unfamiliar with, it's a popular term nowadays. It refers to somebody who is deconstructing, tearing down their faith. They're dissecting, they're rejecting the faith they once believed. It's especially used of young adults talking about rejecting the faith that they were raised with. And when someone does that, they sometimes say, I've deconstructed my faith. And it's a sadly common occurrence to see many people leave the church tradition that they grew up with. And some get to the point that they leave Christianity altogether. Now in that class, we just had a little discussion about it, and something we talked about is that is a very complicated issue. There are many factors that are involved in somebody deciding to leave the faith. It's not just one thing. There's often many things that have kind of stacked on top of each other. And it would be impossible for me to even attempt to address each and everything that leads somebody to walk away from the Christian faith. In fact, I would say that if somebody's thinking about that, it's a much better in-person conversation, to talk to someone one-on-one -on -one and see what is it that to them is pushing them away. But my focus today is a bit more broad. If you are here, you are listening, you've ever thought about giving up the faith, then my message to you is that Jesus is better. He is better than giving up. And I'm going to take today to try to prove it to you. If you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Today we're in chapter 2 of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And once you are there in Hebrews chapter 2, I encourage you, if you are able, to please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and then follow along as I read our passage for today. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we're going to be reading through verse 9. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The authors talked about how Jesus is better than angels, and he says in verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It says in verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. God, there may be many things that cause us to drift away from you. I pray, God, that you would keep us from that, that you would remind us that you are better because you have such a great salvation. You're the one who is in control. You are the one who died to save us. God, would you work in our hearts to draw us closer to you, to the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you haven't been here, we're in the book of Hebrews. So we're walking through this book. The book of Hebrews is a New Testament letter, but it's really not a letter. It's more of a sermon that somebody wrote, an unknown preacher, to believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, who came from a Jewish background. They were Hebrew people. They'd been raised as Jews, but they'd become Christians, and they were tempted to go back to the way things used to be. But the author's message is Jesus is better. And we've been talking about using that phrase better because it conveys emotion. If we say something is better, then it helps us with our comparisons. We, oh, this thing is much more important than that. Our emotion becomes involved. For example, uh, this past week, uh, my wife and I went to, or we ordered from Mission Barbecue last, last Sunday. And when we were there, after we were eating our food, my wife said, you know, I think that their pulled chicken is better than their brisket. And I was deeply offended by that. I said, there is no way that's better than the brisket. So we had to uh, agree to disagree about that. But the point is we had our emotions involved because the word better was used. And so today, we're seeing how Jesus is better than giving up. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is better than angels or any other supernatural thing. And after the author says that, his main point he drives to, the reason he says that Jesus is better than angels is because he's warning them, don't drift away. The application he wants them to take is don't drift away. Don't drift away. We saw this in verses 1 through 3. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message that was declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, then how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We need to pay closer attention, careful attention, give earnest heed to what he's saying here. Again, the reason he said Jesus is better than angels was to teach us not to drift away, not to get distracted from Christ. It's using language like a ship that is not anchored too close to shore. And if it just floats there, it will slowly drift away. It will be taken into danger. Without a firm foundation, we drift away from Christ. You can think about it in the ocean. If you try to float on something in the ocean, if you get out deep enough and you just try to stand, it's amazing when you go out on the beach and you just try to stand in the water and have some fun, and then after about two minutes, you realize you're so much further down the shore. Without realizing it, we can drift away. The same is true for us in life if we're trying to follow God. We're either clinging close to Christ, growing closer to Him, or 
We're going the other way. We're drifting away. We cannot stand still. I have this relationship with God. It's good. Nothing's going to change. No, you either grow closer or we grow away. As one Pastor Michael Kruger said, there is a part of each of us that tends to be drawn to things other than Jesus. And left to ourselves, our hearts tend to drift away from God. And if we drift away, our author tells us, then we're neglecting what Christ has done for us. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is a recurring theme in Hebrews. Do not drift away. Hebrews chapter 12 says, see, do you not Do not refuse him, Jesus, who is speaking. He talks about the Old Testament. If they did not escape when they refused those who warned on earth, well, then much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Last week, we talked about how when people saw angels, they responded in fear. They were afraid of the angels. Well, he's saying we should have a similar reverence for God, for Christ, and not neglect his message. This word drift is such a helpful way of understanding that. And that's why when we were talking in that class this summer about deconstruction, we talked about how it's a slow process. It's very rare that somebody wakes up one day and says, you know, today I'm going to stop being a Christian. That normally doesn't happen. It's normally a very gradual, very slow, very long process. Like drifting away from the shore. It starts slow, but then before we know it, we're very far off course. A good quote I came across about this is from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's a Christian philosopher. One of his books I really enjoy is called The Screwtape Letters. It's supposed to be demons writing each other letters about how they can lead people away from God. And one of them writes this, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Unlike how some other faith traditions talk about it, going to hell is not one big mistake that sends somebody away. No, it's, it's that gradual drifting away from God. It's saying things like, this relationship, this person in my life is, is most important. I'm going to spend my time focusing here. Or this hobby is where I spend all my time and energy. My political preference, that, that's where all my thinking needs to go. And then eventually, those things become more important than God himself. We can see this in how we know God, how we grow closer to him. If we were reading God's word every day, if we were spending time in prayer every day, and then, well, maybe I don't have to do it every day. You know, maybe I don't have to read my Bible every week. I mean, what's really wrong if I don't pray this month? Now, I'm not saying if you miss your Bible reading one day, you're you're gone for good. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm saying having a discipline and then neglecting it is a sign of possible drift. We could also be pushed away from Christ for things like suffering or opposition. It may tempt us to believe God really isn't good. He doesn't have our best interest at heart, that he's not worth it. But our author tells us we shouldn't fall into these traps. He makes an argument in these verses from lesser to greater. The point he's making in these first couple verses is if such amazing things happened in the Old Testament, if there were angels involved and all these great signs and miracles. If that's true, and there was a punishment that came for not following the law, well then, how much more amazing is the gospel and how much more serious is Christ's truth? It is worth hanging on to. 
He points out in verse 2 that angels help to speak and declare God's law. This verse from Deuteronomy talks about a little. It talks about Lord, the Lord coming to give the people the Old Testament law. The last part of the verse says, He came from the ten thousands of His holy ones with flaming fire at His right hand. They could see God coming to give His message. And that message He gave, our verse says, proved to be reliable. It was steadfast and firm. Its truths were binding on the Hebrew people. They could not be altered. It exercised authority. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Justice happened. Punishment was meted out on those who did not follow God. It's the nature of our reality that when we sin and disobey God, it earns us punishment, God's wrath. Disobedience leads to eternal death. All our sin, our rebellion, our rejection of God, that needs to be paid for. Someone must pay the price. The Old Testament law teaches this very clearly. The book of Numbers talks about a person because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity, his sin shall be on him. The author in Hebrews is saying there was no escape for the person who sinned and broke God's law. In just the same way, there is now no excuse. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Sometimes we confuse this, but the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He has not changed. It's just how we relate to Him looks a little different. And when we talk about the New Testament, we talk about wonderful things like mercy, grace, and peace. But God's judgment and His justice has not disappeared. If God's going to be perfectly good and righteous, He has to punish wrong. He must do it. When something wrong happens to us, we want justice. We want it to be made right. And that's a good desire. God has that same desire. And so he responds to it. He punishes sin. One scholar said that the foundation of God's punishment, it resides in his character, his divine love. That's why he punishes sin. The scriptures tell us that sin is terrible. It's a power that moves people away from the holiness of God. Sin warps our existence as God's creation. It's destructive, so God acts against it. In Hebrews, the author is saying there was a punishment. Something happened when people did not follow the law. And his point is there must also then be a punishment for those who neglect God's salvation through Jesus Christ. He seems to be suggesting that rejecting God now is actually more serious than it was back then. The Protestant reformer John Calvin put it this way, the, in proportion to the greatness of Christ will be the severity of God's vengeance on all the despisers of his gospel. Or you can just use the words of Hebrews in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore the salvation that's been made available in Jesus Christ? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is we won't. We won't escape. There will be no exceptions. There is no other eternal salvation to be found. This is the danger in drifting away that we find ourselves when we've completely rejected the good news of the gospel. Hebrews will address this again later. Chapter 10, we read this. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses 
He died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. But how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, who has outraged the Spirit of grace? If disobeying God in the Old Testament led to severe consequences, well then it's even worse for rejecting his good news now. Now, let's be honest, that that may sound a little harsh to us. Isn't that a little overly harsh? But understand what's happening here. This is someone preaching, speaking to people he cares about. He's conveying to them a warning from God. God's warnings are a display of his grace. It's a way of showing love. It's saying, don't do that because that will hurt you. It's like a parent who tells their child, don't play in the street. Don't go out there. They're not doing it because they hate the child and want the child to not have fun. They're saying, that is not a good place for you to be. Don't go there. And it's with a similar insistence that God is telling us, his children, he's not telling us, don't go play in the street. He's telling us, don't drift away. You don't want to be there. Now, later in the book of Hebrews, we'll get into a discussion about, wait, what is he saying here? Is he saying it's possible for us to lose our salvation I don't think so, and and we'll talk about reasons for that. But instead of getting lost in that discussion, let's take a moment to appreciate what's here. This is a strong warning from God to us, and we should take it very seriously. If we neglect Jesus, we let other things captivate our imagination, that's a recipe for disaster. That's the bad news. But what's the good news here? Okay, so if I shouldn't, leave Christ, but I shouldn't give up because bad things happen and we drift away, then why should I stay? What's a good reason to stay? Well, let me give you three of them. Why should we not drift away? Well, first, our author tells us because Jesus offers salvation. We shouldn't drift away because Jesus offers salvation. We see this in the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 of our passage. We're told that this salvation, this How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We talked about the bad news. This is the good news. That punishment we talked about, we don't have to suffer that. We don't have to experience it. If drifting away is like a ship getting blown away from the shore, then the gospel, the good news of Christ, is a harbor that we can anchor in that will keep us safe where we will not be pulled out to sea. Our text tells us that Jesus announced, he declared this salvation. We heard this from God himself. There wasn't a middleman. There wasn't any distortion involved. Jesus shared it. And those who heard, they now attest, they confirm, they tell us, we can confidently trust this. Jesus himself said it. Some of these men who heard it were Peter and John. They say in Acts chapter 5 that the God of our fathers raised Jesus. They're speaking to some Jews who said, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. Peter and John say, we are witnesses to these things. And so is 
God's Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They were witnesses, and they have passed it on. And the author of Hebrews seems to be saying, these men have also passed it on to me. As a completely a side note, this is the one verse that makes us think that it's probably not the Apostle Paul who wrote this, because Paul saw Jesus and heard from him. But this author seems to say, I didn't hear from Jesus, but I heard from the people who saw him, and I trust him. I trust their truth. This is encouraging to us. The person who wrote this book didn't see Jesus, didn't know him personally, in terms of a person that he saw and interacted with. He was trusting the word of others. So we don't need to see Jesus here in the flesh to believe that his word is true. Friends, if we are followers of Christ, we don't believe myths and legends that people have made up. Our faith is based on eyewitness testimony. People saw him. They heard him. They wrote, this is what Jesus has said. We trust testimony, not stories that were made up. It's not a random report. It is confirmed truth. It can be trusted. Jesus said it. Others said this is what he said. But more than that, God himself confirmed it. He proved it was true. He did signs, wonders, and miracles through Christ, our text says. We saw how God proved this earlier in the book. Way back in chapter 1, we read how in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. In Christ, through what Christ did, we see who he is, that he's been appointed the heir of all things, that he was the one who created the world. We're stacking these all up. They're like witnesses at a trial. Jesus said who he was. These others said, we heard him, we saw it. And God showed signs, miracles, and wonders to prove that Christ was who he said he was. They were seals and guarantees that his word was true. The Apostle Peter, speaking about this again in Acts 2, he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, the people who were there, they saw these amazing things that should have proved to them, yes, Jesus is God. But if you need more evidence of it, verse 4 adds another one. Another evidence we have is the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God and the person of the Holy Spirit still works. Even when Jesus had ascended to heaven, he worked through his followers. He still did things that were amazing. And he does the same today through his church. We can see Paul talking about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He tells us there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. For those who know God, to each is given a manifestation, a revealing of the Holy Spirit for the common good. God continues to give his people spiritual gifts, things that they can do to show, to prove, to reveal that the message of Jesus is true. What does that look like? Well, it looks like many churches teaching about who God is. It looks like believers in Christ encouraging one another. It looks like a Christian seeing where a need is and meeting that need. It looks like a church coming alongside a community or an individual to help them after a hard time. It looks like followers of Christ sharing God's truth with others. Sometimes when we talk about God's power, I think our perspective may be a little off. 
we think God's power. Oh, you, you mean like a, a huge thunderstorm outside, this great crash of thunder. Oh, God's power. A volcano that erupts, changes the landscape. Wow, how powerful God is. We look at the expanse of the ocean and the God is over all that. Wow, God is so powerful. But God's work now is especially seen in his church, in people who know him. The Holy Spirit doesn't live in a volcano ocean. The Holy Spirit lives in those who know Christ. That's where God's power is now seen. And that's why we're here. We represent God. If we know God, the Holy Spirit lives in us. We represent God to the rest of the world. I like this, these words from Paul. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making an appeal through us. We are imploring people on behalf of Christ. What is our message? Be reconciled. Be restored to God. The author here in Hebrews, he is speaking to these people. He is calling them, come back to Christ and be committed to his church, to his people. And I know that if we're tempted or we've struggled with the temptation to leave the faith, it's often because of what we see in a church. We see churches that are full of hypocrisy, people who say one thing or do another. You don't have to go far to find a story of a scandal in a church. There's a new one every week. You will see sin among the followers of Christ. You'll see sin among every person who claims to follow Jesus. But the church with a capital C, Christ, church, his body, those, every person throughout all of history who ever knew Christ, that church is God's plan for the world. And each little local church is a small part of that. So if you want to leave Christ, you want to leave his church, then our passage says, be warned, there are consequences for rejecting God. And yes, there are issues in many churches. There's issues in this church, I'm sure, that need fixed, that God can still do work in. And if there's a church that encourages sin, that hides sin, that will be a church that experiences God's judgment. But the church is still God's plan for the world. And so if you struggle and have doubts, please talk to me or talk to someone else. Like, I'm really wrestling with this thing I see in churches. Then please, let's, let's talk about that. Because a church is not supposed to be a place for a performance. It's not supposed to be a place where perfect people gather one day a week. That, that's not why we're here. A church should be a place where we're free to express, this is something I'm struggling with. This is some doubts that I have about God and what he is doing. Instead of being, oh man, that person doubts God. It should be people running saying, I'm so sorry. Let me help you. Let's, let's think through this together. So I pray if you're struggling, you will find someone here to be comfortable sharing with. I pray that this whole church is not a place of judgment or thinking us better than others, but a place where we can be open and honest with one another. And that if someone's struggling, we can encourage them and help them to once again appreciate how great our salvation is. That's what the church is supposed to be. Because it has been entrusted with the message of Christ's great salvation. That's why we shouldn't leave. But if you would like another reason, there's a couple more that our passage talks about. The next couple verses tell us another reason not to leave is because Jesus controls everything. 
You shouldn't leave. You shouldn't drift away because Jesus controls everything. Let me read verses 5-8 through eight for us again. Our author says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Here he's quoting from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And he stops the quote, and then he says, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But he acknowledges that present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The main point of the author is that Jesus is the one who is in control. And even if we don't see it all now, it will be revealed in the future. He does this by starting with saying the angels were never promised dominion. The angels were not promised to be the ones who rule over creation. The angels are his servants. We talked about last week that these Jewish believers, the Hebrew Christians of the day, they were getting distracted by all these things people were saying about angels and what angels could do. And one thing that seems to be common they were talking about is that every nation, every country had an angel who represented them. And so we need our angel to stand up for us and act for us. The author of Hebrews is saying, even if that's true, it doesn't matter because angels do not rule over this world. They will not rule over the next one. Jesus does as our perfect representative. In the future, in the world to come, Jesus' rule will be clearly seen. While now, yes, we just long for it. That's why he quotes Psalm 8 here. It's a psalm about God's care for humanity, but it hints at the role of a Messiah. There's a Savior still to come. This Savior takes on our role that we were meant to have. The psalm is kind of looking back at the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 tells us what people were supposed to be like. God gave us a job when he created us. When God made the very first two humans, God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and Subdue it. Have dominion. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were meant to rule, exercise authority over everything that we see. And the author is saying, Jesus actually fulfills that where we fail. Humans were created to have a lower status and authority than angels, but they still have a position of honor. We reflect God's image more than angels do, even if we do it imperfectly. We each have worth and value. And Jesus was made a little lower too when he became human. There's a wonderful passage where Paul talks about what Jesus did to become like one of us. He encourages us to have that same mind that Christ has, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead he somehow emptied himself. Christ took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what the author is telling us. Christ has become like us, and now all things are subjected to him. Everything's in subjection under his feet. Nothing is outside of his control. He has all authority. 
Last week when he was talking about how Jesus is better than angels, he quoted Psalm 110, which says the same thing. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. They are under his feet. God gave us the responsibility to rule, exercise authority on creation, and we failed because we chased our own sinful desires. We chased after the things we wanted. We failed at our job. We needed someone else to fulfill God's purpose. Our world is now ruled by sin, suffering, and death. The problems are our fault. We needed someone else. Jesus rules now. And he will rule over everything, including angels. As the Apostle Paul also says in 1 Corinthians, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Our author is saying Jesus is better, he's worth trusting, and he's worth not giving up because he rules over everything. But he also has a very honest admission. At the end of verse 8, he says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Sometimes we may hear Christians, people of God, say, Jesus rules, Jesus is king, but we look around and it sure doesn't look that way. Because we see a world of suffering and death. Our loved ones, they get sick, they die. We struggle with with sin, with disobeying God. We look at the world around us, we see so much anger and tension, and we can feel overwhelmed by it. This doesn't feel like a world ruled by a loving God. And if we think outside ourselves and try to think about others, there are many people who claim to be Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ. They experience a persecution far worse than anything that we know far worse than we could imagine. Talking about being thrown in prison for years for just mentioning the name of Jesus. Being executed for claiming to follow him. Some of our brothers and sisters may have their children taken away from them because they follow Christ. These experiences of brokenness remind us that we are waiting for another kingdom. Scholars of the Bible, they have this great phrase that I really love. When they talk about God's rule, they say, already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Jesus already rules over creation. He is already king. But his reign is not yet fully visible. He's not visibly reigning in a way we can see and we can talk to him right here. Now, just because he's not visibly ruling right now, that's not an excuse for fatalism. Well, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so nothing's ever going to get better. Why even try? No, no, that's not the response we're called to. We're called to a response of trust. Because in Christ, one day, our position over creation will be restored. Because He is, He will be in control. We shouldn't leave Jesus, because in the end, He wins. Again, that One scholar quoted earlier, George Guthrie, said, we will not always live in the in-between time. The age of hope looms on the horizon, dwarfing the pains of the present. The suffering we see now will not last forever. And what comes next is on the horizon. Despite all the failures of God's people, of pastors, of churches, Christ will perfectly reign, and rule. That's why we shouldn't leave. And he can do that because Jesus died to save us. 
We shouldn't drift away because he has such great salvation. He's in control, but we especially should not drift away because Jesus died to save us. Died to save us. Let me read verse 9 one more time. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who are we talking about? Namely, Jesus. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. Why did he do that? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We see, we know, we believe by faith. Jesus was made a little lower than angels because he was born as a human. He was an ordinary person. When he lived among us, Isaiah, the prophet, predicts what he will do. It says he had no former majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was an ordinary human being. That was the only way he could take on our sin and die to save us. Yes, it was 2,000 years ago, but aside from what makes the world different in those 2,000 years, he shared the same human experiences that all of us had had, except the end was a little different for him because after his life on earth, after he died, he rose again and he was crowned, exalted to a position of honor and glory. He truly fulfilled what was intended for us. He's fulfilling Psalm 8 that our author quotes. In the words of 1 Peter, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest. He was revealed in the last times for the sake of you. You who through him are believers in God. God raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that now your faith and hope are in God. By suffering, dying for us, Jesus received even greater glory. He becomes the ideal, the perfect man. The perfect man is not a politician or a president. It's not an athlete or an entertainer. The perfect man is the one who died for us. In that death, I, I love the way the author describes it. It's very much like a sermon. It's a poetic phrase to grasp onto. It says that he might taste death for everyone. It's like a chef preparing a meal that takes a spoonful of taste to make sure that the flavor's just right. Or perhaps a, a better illustration, it may be like a parent making a meal for a child who takes a bite of it to make sure it's not too hot or too cold, that it tastes good, that everything's cooked before serving it to the child. Think about it that way. We were supposed to have death for dinner. That was the meal that was supposed to come to us. But Jesus tasted it first before us. And now his message to us is, I've tried that. You don't want that. Let me give you something better. That's why he laid down his life to save us, to provide a way for us to have something better. In the Gospel of John, he compares us to sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. This is God's grace for us. He died for us. He tasted death for us. We didn't earn that. We did nothing to deserve that, but that is the grace he gives us. If you're here, you should ask yourself, do I know that grace? Do I know that grace of God? 
This one who tasted death for me so that I don't have to experience separation from God. Do I know Him? Do I know this Savior? If not, the way you come to Him is you put behind your sin, your rebellion, and you trust and depend on Him. You say, God, I repent. I turn away from those things in my past and I want You. I trust You. I believe You. I rely only on You to bring me to God. I pray that if you not sure you know that, that you talk to someone today about how you can have that relationship with God. But if you're here and you're a follower of Christ or you claim to follow Christ, you may struggle with the temptation to leave, to walk away from church, walk away from Jesus, walk away from all of it. And if your heart's set on that, you will find things to justify that belief. You will find news stories about corruption and scandal in the church. If you don't find it there, you can just look at church history. Stories of stories, hundreds, thousands of years of people who said, I love Jesus, and then do terrible things. If you want to find it, you can just look at somebody who claims to be a Christian. If you watch them closely, you'll see a mess up. and You'll be like, aha, see, this isn't worth it. So if you are set on it and you want to justify why I should go, you will find the reasons for it. Let me encourage you, though, if you have that temptation, don't look at church, don't look at the news, don't look at church history, don't look at those people. Why don't you look at Jesus? Because if you look at Him, you will find infinite reasons to stay. When you feel like giving up, look to Jesus. You will find that He offers a great salvation. He is in control, and you'll be captivated by how he died to save us. And when you see that, the only response that you can have is to worship and praise him.